everyone. Can we give it up for our worship team? It has blessed us today. Just a wonderful gift of worship and singing and lifting our voices before the Lord. If you are new to our congregation, welcome. It's so good to have you with us. My name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And whether you are in the building or watching online on Facebook, on newlife.nyc, or on YouTube, it is a gift to worship with you. At the end of our service, I'll be downstairs in our lobby area with some of our pastors. And so if I haven't met you before, if you're new to our congregation, if you're visiting for the weekend, or if this is your first time here in a long time, I'd love to uh, give you a greeting personally before you walk out of this building. Before I get into my text today, this is going to be quite a week in our nation as our midterm elections are upon us. And so I wanted to offer a pastoral word to our community. Our congregation is incredibly diverse. If you look around this room, you see the immense racial and ethnic diversity uh, within our congregation. But that diversity also extends to how we see the world socially and politically. Uh, and so our congregation, uh, a word from time to time needs to be said because the world, it's tearing itself apart. Uh, and the church is to be just very different uh, than the world. Uh, in 2020, do you remember 2020? Uh, in 2020, um, there was an election, and uh, I think it's safe to say, this is my pastoral estimate, my pastoral assessment, that about 25 to 30% of our congregation voted for Donald Trump, about 25 to 30% of our congregation voted for Joe Biden, about 25 to 30% of our congregation uh, wrote in Spider-Man because he's from Queens. And, <laughs> and folks abstained or they couldn't vote because of their citizenship status. Uh, and throughout that period, I would get up and preach a, a series of sermons and I would say what I'm going to say to you right now uh, in the spirit of trying to recover uh, what was stated and what kind of community we want to be at New Life. So I want to just offer a couple of pastoral words and then preach from a, a famous parable of Jesus called the Good Samaritan. Uh, first thing I want to say is no matter who you vote for, you're welcome in this congregation. No matter who you vote for. Uh, whether you're voting red, whether you're voting blue, you, you are welcome to worship with us. And I'm glad you're here. And we are glad that you're here. Uh, the second, second thing I want to say is uh, my hope is that you would live with great curiosity as it pertains to why those within our community and outside of our community, might, they might see things differently than you do. That you would live with curiosity and live with an attentiveness to actually listen to people who might be different from you. The third thing I want to say is that my hope is that you will see your politics through the lens of Jesus and not Jesus through the lens of your politics. It's very easy to baptize Jesus in the name of our particular politics and believe that that is the Jesus that we see recorded in Scripture. Uh, amen. Uh, in addition to that, it's very easy for folks within our community and outside of our community uh, to be more conversant around political talking points rather than on the Sermon on the Mount. And so my hope for us is that we, live, we will live with great humility. Uh, my hope for us is that we will live studying the life of Jesus looking at the ways that he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount and having the imagination of Jesus begin to shape how we see the world. This is not easy. This requires lots of work, but it also requires us to be honest with ourselves about a few things. 
To what degree have we been shaped by the culture around us and not by the gospel? To what degree have we been discipled by cable news and not by the Son of God? To what degree have we been culturally assimilated into fear and culturally assimilated into particular talking points and not to what the kingdom of God says? And my hope is that we will, as the community, look to Jesus, immerse ourselves in his teachings, and then critically and with discernment begin to find ourselves working that out in our social and political landscape. And I think for Christians, that's not too high of an ask. I think that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And here's the last thing I want to say. This could have been my sermon, by the way. The last thing I want to say is our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. And I need to say that every year, uh, if a Republican gets elected, our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. If a Democrat gets elected, our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. And let us live like people who actually believe that, that Jesus Christ is our hope. Amen, somebody? Amen. Amen. Now, how about a proper sermon? Let's get a proper sermon here. Uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse number 25, we're focusing on the Good Samaritan. Uh, a very famous story and a story that I think speaks to the particular cultural landscape we find ourselves in, in our nation, as well as it speaks to the particular missional priorities that Jesus has for us as we think about serving those who are often overlooked by society and serving those who are often under-resourced in society and serving those who are poor and the marginalized of our society. And so Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse number 25, you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Let me pause here for a second. Do you know it's possible to get all the theology questions right and still be wrong with your life? Do you know it's possible to believe all the right things and still live a life that's not pleasing to Jesus? Let's continue here. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture, the gift of worship, the gift of this community. And now I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive all you want to speak to us this day. We pray these things in Christ's name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. This morning, I want to begin by playing a simple game that we will call Name That Neighbor. Name That Neighbor. And hear how it it works. I'm going to show you a picture of a well-known individual from the 90s television. And so uh, that's all I could do here, the 90s television. And then I want you just to name the name of the neighbor of that person. And so the first person I want to show you is, is this guy here, Tim the Tool Man Taylor. What was the name of his neighbor? Wilson. Wilson, That's, uh, Wilson. correct. Very good. Very good. Um, the next one is uh, Carl Winslow. Who is the name of this neighbor here? Go to the next slide here. Congratulations. Well, 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 well done. Uh, go to the next one here. We have Homer Simpson. Uh, whose name of his neighbor? Uh, yeah, that's right. That, 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 that's Ned Flanders. And, and then we have our, our queen's finest here, Ray Romano here. Uh, who is his neighbor? Uh, his parents, but especially his, his mother there. His mother was... Uh, his neighbor. Now, in the spirit of this game, I, I, I want to ask a very simple question that has lots of spiritual implications for our lives. And the question is, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? This is one of the most important questions we can ask about the spiritual life that has a lot of implications for how we live in the world, and yet this is one of the questions that many of us have a hard time answering. Why? Because one of the fundamental human temptations we have is this. We often wonder, who can I get away with not seeing as a neighbor? Who can I get away with not loving? And if we're honest with ourselves, we have a list in our minds. For some of us, it's a long list of people that we don't consider as neighbors, as people that we draw the line right there when it comes to love. And when we think about the world that we're in that's fractured along social lines, racial lines, economic lines, political lines, religious lines, we often wonder, who can I keep from regarding as a neighbor? Which is why we need this text today. Which was why we need Jesus Jesus to confront us through this parable, which is why we need the good news of the gospel. When we pick up in this story, Jesus is approached by a lawyer. He's not a lawyer as we understand lawyers in our day. He's more of a religious scholar. He's a professor of religion. And this professor comes to Jesus to give him a pop quiz. He's trying to trap Jesus in a particular way. And he asks a fundamental question, a question that's actually a bad question when you begin to examine it uh, further. He asks, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but something needs to be said because this is a bad question. Why? Well, an inheritance, especially in ancient times, was not something that you did something to receive. It's something that you simply received because of relationship. It was not something you could do to get an inheritance. You could not work your way into an inheritance. This was something that you received simply because you were in relationship with the person who was giving the inheritance. The professor scholar, the professor of religion says, what must I do? And he's already off to the wrong start because eternal life is not secured by anything we do. The eternal life is secured because of what Christ has done. That's good news, isn't it? Because if it was up to me, I'd get eternal life one week and then lose it the next week. And then get it back the following week and then lose it the next week. Why? Because eternal life, if left up to me, is this up and down reality. There's no, there's no assurance in this. But because eternal life is based on what Christ has done, our souls can rest. You see, we're not justified before God because of what we do. We're justified because of what God has done. We're not righteous because of what we do. We're righteous because of what Christ has done. We're not saved because of what we do. We're saved because, amen, what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And so this religion professor is already off to the wrong start. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's trying to trap Jesus. And whenever you're trying to trap Jesus, especially in the scriptures, you have to be careful because he has a way of flipping the script. He has a way of turning the tables. He has a way of reversing the conversation in such a way that we all know who's in control here. It's not everyone around him. It's Jesus himself who's in control. And so the religion professor asks a question and Jesus responds with a question. I think about what Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson tells a story of Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a, was a wonderful Jewish novelist, a writer on spirituality, and Wiesel was interviewed one day, and the interviewer said, I have noticed that you Jews often answer questions by asking another question. Why do you do that? To which Wiesel responded, why not? And, and, and that's just the nature of things here. And so this religion professor asks Jesus a question. Jesus asks him a question, and they engage in this kind of a theological table tennis. And as they are volleying back and forth, the religion professor says things like, he has Jesus in a corner. He thinks he's going to win this argument. He answered correctly, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he thinks, I got him. I got him. In asking the question, who is his neighbor, the, the, the religion professor was doing uh, what, what most good lawyers try to do, or, or bad lawyers, I don't know. Uh, they're looking for a loophole in the law. Do I have to love everyone? Is essentially what the religious professor is asking. Is there a neighbor that I must love? And is there a neighbor that I can go without loving? In short, Jesus, where can I draw the line? And if we're honest with ourselves, 
We've asked that to Jesus too. Jesus, where can I draw the line about that person there? And so Jesus, in response to this question, does not go into theological abstraction. He does not point to the Old Testament. Jesus, what he does is he tells a story. He tells a parable, a parable that has shaped the consciousness of people ever since. He begins to talk about this good Samaritan. Jesus mentions that there's a guy who is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and Jericho is a very dangerous place. It's a dangerous road, and this man gets beat down, robbed, and left for dead. And at this point, Jesus introduces the cast of characters. He says, first, a priest comes on the scene, and the priest sees the man who's half dead. He crosses the street, and he continues to walk. Then he says a Levite comes on the scene. The Levite is the assistant to the priest. And the Levite sees the man. He crosses the street and he continues to move on. Now at this point in the story, Jesus had a way of taking stories that were very common in that day and adding a little detail that changed the meaning of the story altogether. As they're listening to Jesus, they're saying, oh, oh, I heard this one before. I know where this is headed. What you're going to say, Jesus, is you're going to introduce an anti-clergy hero, someone who's not from the religious establishment, someone who's not a pastor, someone who's not a priest, someone who's not a religious person, and that person is going to help the man, and that person is going to be the hero of the story, and here's the lesson. The lesson's going to be, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a priest you don't have to be a religious scholar to do good things okay Jesus uh, move on with what you're going to say but instead of Jesus going with what they anticipated once again he flips the script once again he turns the tables once again he upsets their equilibrium because instead of introducing an ordinary Jewish man who would become the hero of the story Jesus introduces a Samaritan And you can be sure that eyebrows are lifted. You can be sure that fists are clenched. You can be sure that blood is beginning to boil because the the Jews and the Samaritans had lots of drama together. There was no such thing in that day as a good Samaritan. You know, if you lose your wallet and someone says, hey, I found your wallet, here it is, and then the cash is still there. I don't know if that happens in New York, but the cash is still there. We go, wow, this was a good Samaritan. We have hospitals called Good Samaritan, ministries called Good Samaritan. There's a lot of good about Samaritans in our day, but in that day, there was nothing good about a Samaritan. There was a mutual hatred that was had between the Jewish people and Samaritans. They were suspicious of each other. Within Judaism, uh, Gentile sinners and Samaritans were not considered as neighbors. The Samaritan was publicly cursed in religious gatherings and excluded from the afterlife. There were phrases like this, he who eats with the bread, the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. If you do good, know to whom you do it, And do not help the sinner or the Samaritan. And what Jesus is doing in here is being very intentional in introducing this cast of characters because the Samaritan, the Jewish person, is waiting for the hero to look something like him. The, the, The Jewish person, the religious scholar, is waiting for the hero to be someone who votes like he does. 
for someone who sees the world exactly like he does. And yet Jesus introduces someone entirely different. And what Jesus is saying is that in order to follow God correctly, in order to follow God with integrity, we must connect love for God with love for neighbor. That's essentially what he's getting at. That you cannot love God and not love neighbor if you truly love God. That the truest expression of love for God is not praying. That the truest expression of love for God is not simply being kind in our hearts. The, the, most, the, most, the biggest concrete expression of love for God is love for our neighbor. And it is in love for our neighbor that we actually get a fresh revelation of love of God. I think about the Chilean uh, uh, poet, uh, Gabriela Mistral, who said these words. She said, I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but he eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. What this poet is saying is that our relationship with God and others is so connected that it's hard to distinguish where one stops and the other begins. And so Jesus is explaining to this religious professor love, compassion, what it means to be a good neighbor. And he knows that there are a few things here that keep the Levite and the priest from being a good neighbor and things that keep us from being a good neighbor as well. The first thing that is not outright stated, but I think we can infer it, is that it was fear that kept them from being a good neighbor. Fear. I imagine they're walking down and they see this man, and probably, again, Jericho is a very dangerous place. They're probably thinking, if we help the man, the, the people who did this to the guy is probably right around the corner. And they'll probably do the same to me. And so they keep on walking because of fear. And it's amazing how fear has a way of disrupting love. The gospel, uh, the book of 1 John says that perfect love casts out fear. But here's our cultural reality. Perpetual fear casts out love. We live in a society that's generated by fear. We live in a society that makes lots of money based on anxiety. That's how the, the world goes round because of anxiety and fear. And the question becomes, to what degree has fear so hijacked your ability to love? The other day, Rosie and I were in front of our home and we saw a person who was giving out these political flyers, so vote for this person, vote for that person, and, and he came to our home, and, and he, he, his opening line was a bit curious. He said, you know, I don't care who you vote for, but he had a, a specific person he wanted me to vote for, and, and yeah, I don't care who you vote for, and then from there, he began to lament and talk about the problems of our world, but he began to speak about it with so much fear, and it wasn't Here's not what I'm not saying that we are to put our heads in the sand and not be afraid. There are certain things that people should be afraid because the world is going in a particular direction where there are certain things that we should be afraid of. It's one thing to be afraid about certain things, and to, it's another thing to where your entire existence 
is fear. And this guy, it wasn't that he was concerned and fearful and, hey, we can do some things about it. His entire existence was fear. And he became, in that moment, an evangelist for fear, an evangelist for anxiety. There was nothing good about it. And he walked away looking for the next person. I thought to myself, to what degree has fear robbed love from my life? Which is why we have to be careful about being discipled by cable news. There's something called cable news discipleship. That if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, you will now get narratives and stories about people with the singular objective to be afraid of them in such a way where you have to do something against them. That's the way that the world operates. This is the ethos of our world system. This is not the ethos of the kingdom of God. This is not the ethos of those who follow Jesus. But in this case here, they were so marked by fear. The question is, to what degree is fear shaping your social imagination? To what degree is fear shaping the way you see others? The first thing is fear. The second is, is why did they miss the man? Well, because it seems that they were maybe absorbed in their own life, absorbed in their work. They were so absorbed in what they had to do, you know, for some to, to touch a, a man who might be perceived as, as dead might be uh, uh, contaminating. And so they say, no, I have to do the, the religious work. I have to do the spiritual work. And so I must do everything I can to avoid this so I can actually worship God with clean hands. The irony of it is that the Levites were the public health officials. They were to be the ones who distribute alms to the poor. But they're so preoccupied, perhaps, with their own lives, with their own status, with their own uh, to-do list, that they just totally ignored the man who lay there half dead. And I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's trying to let us know something. He's trying to let us know that the Good Samaritan story is not simply a parable about compassionate spirituality, that the Good Samaritan story is also a critique against religious passivity. This is not just a story of compassionate spirituality. This is a story of religious passivity. And it reminds me of this crucial point. As the great preacher Tom Skinner once said, that God will not go without a witness. Meaning, if the church doesn't step into the world, God will find somebody else who will. And so this is a critique against religious passivity, where in the name of Jesus, we actually avoid proximity to those who are poor and proximity to those who are powerless and proximity to those who are overlooked by our society. This is a critique against religious passivity. And so Jesus begins to uh, tell the story and, and highlight these guys left, these, this guy left, but then the Samaritan comes on the scene, and the Samaritan is a wonderful example of what our lives should be marked by. People who have been rescued by Jesus, people who have been forgiven by Jesus, what is our lives to be marked by? And I want to offer three words that this Samaritan actually steps into. The first thing that this Samaritan does is he offers his dignifying attention. His dignifying attention. The passage says that the, the Samaritan saw the man. He actually sees him. 
He didn't see some shadow. He didn't see some mirage. He didn't see some some cluster of, of humanity. He actually saw the person and had mercy on him. And the question is, to what degree are we actually seeing people? Especially the poor. Especially those who are marginalized in society. Are we actually seeing people? Some months ago, I told the story that bears repeating. I was, I was driving uh, home uh, with my 11-year-old daughter, Karis, from gymnastics, and she was sitting in the back, and, and we got to this spot on Queens Boulevard where a woman was selling mangoes. And as she's selling the mangoes, she's moving towards my car, and as she's moving towards my car, I start inching up a little bit more so that as she walks by, I can just drive right by her really slowly. You've done that before? Have you ever done that? And... and and then I look in the side view mirror to see, okay, she's behind me. She's going to go to the next car. And I just kind of just did one of these things, just totally averted any eye contact. And once I, when she passed by, my 11-year-old daughter, Karis, screams in the back of the car saying, how could you do that? <laughs> and it wasn't like, Dad, how could you do that? How could you? It, it was fur- fury. How could you do that with tears going down her eyes? How could you do that? And I said, do what? And she said, you ignored her. You ignored her. And I got into self-justification. I said, well, I don't have any cash on me, Karis. I don't have any cash on me. And she said, you ignored her. You ignored her. And in that moment, I just, first of all, I felt the judgment of God in my car. Just the... (laughs) This is the last time I'm taking her anywhere. This is the last time. <laughs> the profound judgment of God. You didn't even see her. And I thought to myself, from that point on, whether I have cash or not, because of that truly holy moment, my response is simply just, I, I, I'm giving you my dignifying attention. I see you. Someone came up to me at the end of the service and said, Rich, we're in New York City. We can't make eye contact with everyone. That, that'll, that'll start some fights here. You know what I'm saying here? And I thought, you missed the point, brother. You missed the point. Because I'm not just talking about actually seeing, of course I'm talking about actually dignifying attention and seeing people. But can we see the larger picture of someone's life? Can we see the full story? Can we see their full humanity? Can we see the larger structures and systems? Can we see the larger forces that are at work in their lives that have got them to the point where they're at? Can we see them? Can we give them our dignifying attention? The Samaritan gives dignifying attention, and then he doesn't just give attention and move on. He offers compassion. He offers compassion. To to, to love God, to love God, to love our neighbor, it's going to cost us something if we're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. That word compassion comes from two words, come to suffer with, to suffer with. Meaning compassion is not something that we do that feels good and, and, and gets goosebumps because I did it. It's actually supposed to cost us something to actually love in the way that Jesus is calling us to love. The Samaritan says this is going to cost him something. It's going to cost him some money. It's going to cost him some time. It's going to cost him some energy. And that's the question for me and the question for you. To what degree have we been so absorbed in our own world 
that we don't see the pain around us, that we don't see the stories of suffering often in our own homes. And the Samaritan has compassion, compassion, compassion. I love how Dr. King said it. Dr. King said that the question that the Levite asked and the priest asked was, what would happen to me if I helped this man? But the Samaritan flips the question and says, what will happen to him if I do not help this man? And so he's moved by compassion. And his compassion is expressed here in advocacy, in advocacy. I think about a Proverbs 31 that says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And this is what the Samaritan does. He went down, verse 34, he bandaged his wounds, he pours on oil and wine, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you with any extra expense you may have. This stuff costs us something. And he speaks up on behalf of the man. He uses his energy. He uses his influence. He uses his, 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 his capital. He uses his capacity to actually serve those who are down half dead. And Jesus invites us to it as well. This is one of the things that we've been trying to do for many, many years at New Life Fellowship Church as a community together. Pastor Sharon showed you that infographic. I want to show it to you again, that we are a regional church, New Life Fellowship Church, this region of Queens and a region in Long Island, and we have a local focus, that God has brought us to this neighborhood because... We want to make Elmhurst a better place. We want to serve the residents and the neighbors, particularly in Elmhurst. That whether we live in this neighborhood or not, if you're part of this community, we want to do what we can to serve those who live in this community. And when you look at the challenges that are before so many men and women and children in this neighborhood in particular, God brought you here for a reason. When you look at that 20% have pass rates for reading at math at one local elementary school, that 65.6%, despite exceptionally high rates of employment, most families are living at or near the poverty line. Two, to three, uh, two out of three children live in households at or near the poverty line. And then when you look at the pandemic and the impact that the pandemic has had disproportionately impacting families like that in our neighborhood, God has sent us here to actually lift our voice. God has sent us here to actually put feet on the ground. God has sent us here to actually give expression to the gospel. This is why we've had programs for many years at New Life where we have these young governor's programs where we train teenagers to be community organizers, to actually look at what's going on in our neighborhood, in our region, and actually do something about it. This is why we had a a health center, and and before the pandemic, we were seeing about 2,000 patients per year who were uninsured or underinsured in our community and actually trying to speak to and, and, and serve them in very particular ways through our health center. Through our food pantry, 
delivering food to 25 local families and, and offering 50 to 80 uh, uh, homeless meals to homeless neighbors on Tuesdays and Saturdays. And the list has gone on for the work that we've been trying to do for a couple of decades in this community. And so I want you to hear this today. If you are here, if God has brought you here, it's not simply to worship and and to sing and to connect here. If God has brought you to New Life Fellowship Church, it is as well because he's entrusted us to actually work for the flourishing of this neighborhood and the flourishing of Queens and the flourishing of New York City. And the deep question that we must ask ourselves, the deep question that we must wrestle with is, what is our motivation to doing this? Why should we be concerned? Why should our hearts be pricked by the gospel? Why should we say, I just don't want to give a handout. I actually want to participate in the work of God making all things new. What is our motivation for it? To answer that question properly through this story, we must learn to properly identify who we are in the story. Who are we in the story? That is the question. And first and foremost, we must recognize that we are not the priests in the story. First and foremost, we must recognize that we are not the Levite in the story. First and foremost, we must recognize that we are not the good Samaritan in this story. First and foremost, we must recognize that you and I are the man who lay there half dead. You and I are the person who is laying there half dead. Why? Because at some point in your life, you will find yourself in a ditch, an economic ditch, a spiritual ditch, a psychological ditch, a social ditch, a financial ditch. You and I are the person fundamentally who lay there half dead. And the good news of the gospel is this. That a good Samaritan has come. The good news of the gospel is this, that when the, the, the world has overlooked us, when no one has seen us, when no one could actually do something about my problems, my spiritual problems, my psychological problems, whatever problems that is, God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and washes our wounds. God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and rescues us from despair. God comes, amen, in the person of Jesus Christ and pays our debts. God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and raises us up to newness of life. Jesus is the good Samaritan and he has put his hands on our lives. And raised us up. Why? So that we can participate with him in the raising up of of other people. That's why you're here. That's why you exist as followers of Jesus. To actually join in what he has done and is doing. Jesus raises us up out of the ditch. Why? Because... He knows what it's like to be in a ditch, and he knows how to get out of it. I think of a a famous story. I heard it on the West Wing a number of years ago, uh, a great series, uh, about a a similar story 
about a man who's walking down the street and he falls into a hole, a hole so steep that he cannot get out of it. And a doctor passes by and the guy shouts, hey, can you help me? Can you help me get out of here? And the doctor writes the man a prescription and throws it down the hole and continues to walk. And then a lawyer comes along and the guy shouts, hey, can you help me? And the lawyer looks down and says, we are going to sue whoever did this to you. Here's my business card and he throws it down the hole. Then a priest comes along, and the man shouts, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you please help me out? And the priest writes down a prayer, throws it down the hole, and keeps on walking. And then a friend walks by, his friend Joe. And, and Joe, he says, Joe, it's me. I'm down here. Can you get me out of here? And Joe, his friend, jumps in the hole with him. And the guy says, now that's stupid. Now we're both down here. <laughs> and Joe says, yeah, we're both down, but I've been here before. And I know how to get us out of here. If there's anyone who's been in a ditch, it's Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who's been in a hole, it's Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who understands what it means to have a dark night of the soul, it is Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who knows what it means to be poor, it is Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who knows what it means to be weak, it is Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who knows what it means to be powerless and to be left for dead, it is Jesus Christ. But thank God that he knows how to get up out of every ditch and raise us up to newness of life. And that's why we're here. That's why you're here. That's why this church is here. We're not just here to get spiritual goodies. We're here to join our lives to Jesus for the sake of the world around us, especially for those who the world has overlooked. And may the Holy Spirit arrest our souls. May the Holy Spirit prick our hearts. May the Holy Spirit invite us and open our eyes to remind us of why we exist, why we are here, why we are the body of Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Let me invite you to close your eyes and let's pray for a moment. And a wonderful way to go into a time of communion, of enjoying the bread and the cup. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the urgency of the gospel that calls us to action, that calls us not just to believe certain things, but to join our lives to you in the healing, in the remaking, in the shalom of the world. Lord, help us to recognize that we've needed rescue, rescue from our sins, rescue from ourselves, rescue from the powers of sin and death. And may that rescue that we've received be converted into compassion and our dignifying attention. 
Thank you for the gift of the Lord's table. That we're able to come to the table, not in our name, but in your name. Not in our works, but in your work. Not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. We pray these things in Christ's name, and everyone said, let's all stand together. I want to give you a moment of your own confession and repentance. Where have you crossed the street? Where have you not given others their dignifying attention? And I know what some of you are probably thinking right now, but Rich, but what about, but what about, well, what about? Certainly life is very layered and complicated and nuanced. And there are times to talk about the specificity of scenarios, but we're getting at the heart right now. What's the state of your heart? What's the state of your heart towards those who don't see the world like you do? To those who don't look like you? What's the state of, that's, let's start there. Before we start talking about the particularities of every situation. Which is another way of saying, Lord, who, who's really my neighbor? Let's pray this prayer of confession on, on the screen together. And boy, do I need to pray this prayer of confession. And to receive God's mercy and his grace to be more faithful to Jesus. Let's pray it together. Almighty God, our heavenly Father. We have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, for each and every one of you. Do this in remembrance of me as the people of God set free by the broken body of Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns as the people of God who have been forgiven by the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together. Lord, thank you for the gift of your poured out life and the ways it leads to newness of life for us we sing to you now these words of praise 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
have our prayer team come to my to my right some of us came to church today some of us are watching online and it feels like you're like the guy half dead in a ditch life has just beat you up you find yourself struggling to get through it week after week maybe you just need someone to pray for you someone to remind you of the promises of God of the presence of God in your life and so, if you came into church today, you just need someone to pray for you. Our prayer team will be here to my right. For whatever need that you have, we'd love to pray for you. I also imagine that if you're watching online, maybe you came to church today, that some of you have never said yes to Jesus Christ. You've never said, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to receive him as Lord, as Savior, as teacher. I want to entrust my life to Jesus and the life to come to Jesus. And if that's something that you feel just bubbling up inside your soul, you can do two things. You can come up for prayer. You can also text that phrase on the screen, uh, yes to Jesus, to 718-424-0122. And one of our pastors would love to follow up with you and have a spiritual conversation about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The other invitation is at the end of the service, uh, some of our CDC representatives, some of our CDC leaders, our community, and again, that's, I can't say it enough, that's our Community Development Corporation. We don't have a center for disease control here, but uh, so I have to continue to stress what this organization is. Uh, we're going to be downstairs, and we'd love to help you discern what does it mean to actually be engaged on mission at New Life Fellowship Church. One of the ways is through our Community Development Corporation. Uh, and so feel free to pick up a wonderful T-shirt that says, We Love Queens. Every time I wear it, somebody goes, Where did you get it from? Where did you get it from? From our CDC. So feel free to pick that up and also learn about various ways that you can support financially or volunteer in one of our programs. Um, and so we'd love to actually get you started on that. At the end of this service here, we'll have a little break and 
and those who registered, and even if you came in and this just piques your curiosity, we have a, a special guest, Jason Gaber, who's going to lead a, uh, a gathering on loneliness. And what does it mean to not just a, a journey through your own loneliness, but what does it mean to serve others who might be experiencing this as well? And feel free to join us if you register. And if you didn't register today, go, oh, I forgot, I passed the deadline. Um, I, as the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church, I hereby grant you authority to come. Uh, I might get in trouble with our staff, but um, amen. Uh, so feel free to join us uh, for that. And in a world that's increasingly lonely, like that man who lay there half dead, uh, it is a wonderful opportunity for us to actually be the presence of Jesus for one another. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If you're watching online, feel free to open your hands wherever you're at as well. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit. May you recognize that you are the person who lay there half dead. May you recognize that God's kindness has come to you in Jesus Christ and that God has called you to join him in the healing, in the restoration, in the renewal of the world. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the compassionate name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all.